The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Werewolf Bar Mitzvah Edition. It's Wednesday, October 31st, 2018. Spooky. On today's show, Jamie Lee Curtis returns as Laurie Strode, bogeyman magnet in an updated version of the uh, 1978 horror classic Halloween. And then Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House is now a multi-part net flicker. Okay, you may be sensing a theme here. Uh, our third topic in keeping with the other two. Why are so vanishingly few horror movies directed by women. We discuss a very good provocative essay about that uh, subject. Uh, Isaac Butler is joining me. Isaac, you're a theater director, you're a writer, you're a mensch, you're a dad, you're everything really. And now you're a co-host on the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Uh, The only thing about you, though, I will say is not to, I pumped you up and now I'll diminish you a little bit. Your feet look tiny in uh, Julia Turner's shoes. (laughs) <laughs> that's true. That's true. They are gi- ginormous, ginormous shoes, and I am but a little, little person. Yes, do your best uh, to walk in them. Um, and of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. All right, you two, explain to me the title. <laughs> yeah, uh, so you may remember the uh, hit Tina Fey scripted uh, NBC sitcom 30 Rock. There's an episode where uh, Tracy Morgan's character has released a uh, Halloween novelty single called Werewolf Bar Mitzvah. And it's actually probably my one of my favorite jokes in the whole series, I would say. Would be that song. Werewolf Bar Mitzvah. Spooky, scary. Boys becoming men. Men becoming wolves. All right. That was, that was great, Trey. Okay. All, all right. All right. Let's dig, let's dig in here. Halloween, of course, is the 1978 complete classic John Carpenter genre-defining uh, low-budget horror flick. It's been made and remade and redone and rebooted and debooted. Uh, and this is a complete tabula rasa, like, you know, uh, ignoring all of the in-between movies uh, remake. And it stars Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie Strode. She's twice divorced in a basket case, carrying around with her the trauma of that uh, horrible Halloween night back in the late 70s. She's grandmother to a family that regards her as a survivalist crank, but she's been waiting low these 40 years for a reunion with evil let's listen to a clip michael myers is a human being who killed his sister when he was six years old and he came after you we just want to know why we want a glimpse inside his mind michael myers murdered five people and he's a human being we need to understand they're transferring him tomorrow seven o'clock He'll be locked away until the end of his days. That's the idea. Laurie, we saw him. We met with Michael. I showed him the mask. There was nothing. No response, nothing. He won't talk to anyone. Never has, but... but I think he might speak with you. Uh, Dana Stevens, uh... I know you're a Halloween completist. You've seen them all, including the Rob Zombie one. Um, what do you make of this uh, latest? You know, after Keith Phipps' essay in Slate about the Rob Zombie Halloween sequel and how superior it was to the others, I sort of do want to see it now. But yeah, I barely remember the first Halloween 
much less uh, any of the the follow-ups. Although in putting this together, I did I did watch some of the original Halloween and certainly listened to the great soundtrack quite a bit and started to realize something that I hadn't when it came out because I was too young to see it then, that it was really unusual among horror films for the time. I mean, it inspired so many imitators and mm-hmm. you know became this, this Ur-slasher movie that all the slasher movies were modeled around. That made me more interested in this Otherwise, I think somewhat uninteresting remake slash reboot. I mean, this movie directed by David Gordon Green, I can't remember if we said that, uh, is kind of trying to be an auteur-driven, um, affectionate homage almost to the original. And of course, an affectionate homage to a movie that's all about this horrible, faceless serial killer is a strange thing to undertake in the first place. There's something at once kind of sentimental about the gesture of reaching back, right, Getting stripping away all of the the sequels and just making a movie about the same woman 40 years later facing the same man. Um, And to me, that sort of takes away from the scariness a little bit. I don't know about you guys, but I did not find this movie terribly scary. And the main thing Mm -hmm. that I wanted from it was not that, you know, affectionate homages and callbacks. And we can talk about what some of those were to the original, but um, but more Jamie Lee Curtis. I wanted I wanted more of the Jamie Lee Curtis who proudly tweeted after opening weekend that this was, you know, the top grossing film ever with a female lead over 55. I think it was. And one of the top grossing horror films. I can't remember what all I'm going to get them all wrong if I say what they were. But she had this great braggy kind of post. And uh, and those moments in the movie are my favorites. The moments when mm-hmm. Laurie Strode, who's this pretty, I think, believable character who spent 40 years preparing for the second encounter with this killer, um, when we see her get to kind of just bust out and be and be affirmed, you know, be vindicated in all of her 40 years of, of paranoia. But mm-hmm. in between, there is a, a whole lot of teenager slashing, just, I think, very uh, run of the mill kind of sneaking up on babysitters. I don't know. What, what did y'all think? I, I, I completely agree. So I think the final set piece, which is the confrontation between Laurie Strode and her family, we should probably also give a shout out to Judy Greer, who I think is pretty amazing in the movie. Uh, playing her daughter. Playing playing Laurie Strode's daughter. Yeah. So like the final kind of set piece, the confrontation between Laurie Strode and her family uh, and Michael is the only moment where the movie is like suspenseful, maybe a little bit scary or even interesting. Like, I, I just thought it was, like, up until then, a completely hollow exercise. I mean, if you're going to do an, an, an auteurist <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, a horror movie, you should probably, like, have something you're interested in saying or doing with it. But instead, I felt like it was kind of, like, cautiously ticking as many boxes as, as possible. So it, like, gives you gratuitous nudity at the beginning, but a feminist ending. And it, like, makes sure that you get what you want from a Halloween movie, which is teenagers getting stabbed to death. Uh, uh, I agree but- that the feminism is sort of meted out as one of the elements in the stew or something like that. And to me, it's sort of, if it's not driven by that, if it's not driven by that character, then what's the point of throwing it in? Yeah, exactly. And you get like, you know, um, you know, two really fun moments of Danny McBride writing in it, you know, that are like two laugh lines that he clearly wrote that are great. You know, like, like there's a weird thing where it just felt like it had a checklist that it was going down. Mm-hmm. And it's only at the end that it actually feels like uh, anyone involved is like super interested in what they're doing. At least to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. A couple of very quick questions. Dana, you first. Who? What other movies did uh, David Gordon Green direct? Oh, well, he's, I mean, 
so many. He made Pineapple Express. I mean, lately he's been making more kind of comedies, right? And, yeah. Uh, and mainstream studio movies. But he has three great features that he made before he sort of very self-consciously, there's an interview you can read that he did with Mark Harris in 2008 where he very self-consciously was like, I'm tired of making these movies that no one sees. And then he made Pineapple Express. But before that, he made George Washington, which is amazing. Which I disagree that it's amazing, but so, go on. But, but he, that he self-financed for $48,000. and then he did, I completely agree that it's, it's, it's an unusual and incredibly bold first film. I just don't like it. Yeah. They're totally valid. And then he did uh, All the Real Girls and then he did a thriller called Undertow. So he did these Mm -hmm. like three movies and then since then he's sort of more gone in a kind of like mainstream larger audience blockbuster direction. But he is some and he's he's good friends with Danny McBride. He's kind of a southern filmmaker, right? He he makes a lot of movies that have a certain uh, voice that's kind of I would say sort of an indie slacker easygoing, right? right? Yeah, totally. I completely agree with what both of you are saying. The virtue of the first Halloween was its economy, its incredible economy, its simplicity, uh, what details Carpenter added to the script and to the direction to point up um, the suspense of it. I mean, it's just a suspense masterpiece in many ways. Just remarkable. You are on that street, in that world, in the world of those babysitters. And um, uh, well, and there's and also, then, let me, can I just point out, there's also some first person camera work that was pretty, mm-hmm, pretty yes. new at the time. You are Michael Myers when you first see Michael well, Myers, right? I mean, you exactly. are him before you see him in the very yeah. beginning of the movie. Right. And then, and then because Carpenter knew exactly what he was doing, one of the scariest things audiences at the time had ever seen in a movie theater was that guy sitting up, right? And that is a, that is a masterclass in creating suspense. It's like, a similar kind of scene at the end of Diabolique where the whole movie really is engineered around this thing happening that is going to chill you to the core, but it itself is not especially gory or violent or spectacular at all. It's a simple action or gesture, but because the t- director is so in control of the totality of the project, that gets you to, to the core. And it seems to me they understood everything about and homaged up the yin-yang, everything about the original, except that economy and except that kind of control of the material. And so it's just bloat, homage bloat uh, and directionlessness and incredibly, incredibly gory. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's dependency on the explicitness um, and, and spectacularity or whatever the word would be of its violence to me was just an incredible crutch. I mean, I, I was I was sort of floored by that. And then, um, you know, the, the, the final thing I just want to uh, uh, inject here is that I agree with both of you that, that that last set piece, finally you kind of have, you know, a, a kind of coherent action that's non-obligatory, that connects thematically to the movie uh, and is um, is at least somewhat interesting. But the rest of the movie was just, I don't know, I was I found it disheartening, really, to watch that much violence, to be completely honest. Well, there was a part of me that felt it is very weird that 40 years later, all of these people are hung up on five people being stabbed. You know, like like that the whole town, it's treating this as an apocalypse event and that there's something kind of quaint about that in a weird way. But mm-hmm. then... One of the characters actually says that out loud. One of the characters is like, why is everyone care so much about these five people being killed 40 years ago? Worse stuff happens every day. And, and it's a teenager. It's one of the next generation right. who says that. 
Yeah, and and it and it is actually I think one of the things that robs this p pe- this film of of it being sort of convincingly suspenseful and scary is how self aware it is and how many lampshades it hangs on how many things. So like part of what makes Michael Myers scary in the original movie is that he has no motivation. He's like faceless evil. His name famously in the credits is the Shape, right? He just is in a gas station uniform and a mask. Uh, and there's like a couple lines about that that he's the boogeyman or whatever, right? Whereas in the new one, everyone sits around talking all the time about like, he has no motivation. We're podcasters trying to figure out the motivation, you know. And so like, like, like it belabors everything so much that there's no room for you, the viewer, to have your own response to anything that's going on because it has already had that response. And the characters who are themselves essentially fans of the original movie keep just mm-hmm. talking about yep. the meaning of its own franchise. And like, that's just not interesting material. You know, and you can do self-aware horror. You can do it. And it, you like scream is actually very effective at that. But there's like a limit to what you can do in there and um, not completely kind of shove the audience out of the thing. Mm, you're creating. Yeah, Isaac, that just made me think of something about the original that is very free associative. But I'm going to say it anyway, which is to me, when I remember the original Halloween, what makes it scary is the emptiness. It has a lot of, of dead space in it. I mean, to make a bad pun. Right. It has a lot. The very first shot is of an empty house with you know leaves mm-hmm. blowing down the street. Um, the music has that repetitive kind of airy quality almost. The score, of course, is by Carpenter himself, who also wrote the score to this new one, with slightly changed theme of the, the original Halloween theme. And this movie just doesn't have that kind of air blowing through it. You're right that it's kind of stuffing the cracks with dialogue and character and more, you know, clever killing scenes. And there isn't that sense of 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 empty foreboding that the first one is mm-hmm. so good at evoking. Right. right. And, the, and right. that's because the first one took a weakness, which is that they had no money. Right. And like made that its aesthetic, which is like, you know, you know, you're in the presence of like a really brilliant director when they take the shortcomings and it actually yeah. becomes the key to what works about about, you know, a film or a play or whatever is that, you know, like um, Jason Zinneman, you know, talks about this in his brilliant book about this era of filmmaking, which is uh, called Shock Value, that, you know, one of the things, the reasons why Mike Myers has no personality or drive is that then anyone could play him and they didn't need to be a good actor. You know, like there's all these things that that movie is doing that are sort of like working around the own limitations of that production. And so now you have this film that has like none of those limitations. And as a result, it kind of has no personality. Right. Teeny bit of trivia about that, about the low budget. Do you know that the, the original mask was a William Shatner mask that had been spray painted <laughs> yeah. white? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Captain Kirk. I love yeah. that. I love also how that kind of, you know, brings up Star Trek itself, the original Star Trek, and it's kind of low budget cheapness and just reappropriating crap off the store shelves into a scary prop that's lasted for 40 years. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, the one thing I got to get in one last shot before we move on. <laughs> the, whole, the entire time I was like, you had 40 years to plan for this. And I was saying it both to the writer and director of the film and to Laurie Strode. I, I, you, that's your setup? If this guy comes to your house? I mean, it, it just... There were there were there were some screaming implausibilities, you know. I mean, I mean, she, the whole idea of the film is that she's made herself invulnerable physically, which has made her invulnerable emotionally, which has turned her into a monster. Like that's your theme, right? That's mm-hmm. your fucking theme, and it's 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 they just. You know, uh, it's absurd how easily he gets into her fucking house at the end of the movie is all I'm going to say. All right. Uh, and, you know, you know, he's getting in there. So it's not a spoiler. The movie's Halloween. Check it out. Tell us what you thought of it. Tell us what you thought of the original. And let's move on. Okay. 
All right, uh, we have business. Isaac, what do you got? Thanks, Steve. In Slate Plus today, we're talking about the demise of Filmstruck, the relatively young, it's only two years old, uh, streaming service of classic cinema and the Criterion Collection and what it means for our culture and our culture's past going forward. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, mm. onward. All right, well, The Haunting of Hill House is a 1959 classic uh, um, Shirley Jackson novel. I have yet to read it. In fact, I'm going to violate the one, you know, kind of household edict, iron household edict we have in the Metcalf Zan household, which is you never, never watch the movie or TV show before reading the book. But unfortunately, I just haven't gotten around to it. My wife says it's one of the great. Uh, books ever written. Anyway, now it's a 10-part streamer for Netflix. It's got Carla Gugino and Timothy Hutton in it, among many others. It's been updated a lot to our sensibilities. I'm told it's a very loose adaptation. Uh, it begins with a married couple fixing up a rundown mansion uh, with plans of flipping it. The renovation keeps them there longer than they're planned, and they begin experiencing paranormal activities, they and their kids, their kids especially. But the substance of the show is this very, I think, quite well done flashback between then, which was the 1990s and now, with the adult kids who are carrying the trauma and the horror of what happened to them in that house around with them today. Uh, Let's listen to a clip. The night after he died, it started with drops of water, like raindrops falling onto my face. I started to hear a car horn, short bursts, Distant, I think, but close enough to wake me. And then I felt the water on my cheeks and I heard the car horn. And then I looked up at the ceiling and there he was, hanging there, upside down. I could could see the water dripping off of his hair, and his face was a a deep purple, like the blood had all just pooled into his cheeks. It's funny, you think you'd scream after seeing something like that, but you don't. You just stare. Isaac, let me start with you this time. Uh, have you read the original novel? And um, and either way, what do you think of this? Uh, I have actually read the original novel. I took a, a course in plot uh, in graduate school, and we read the uh, for my MFA, and we read the Haunting of Hill House as part of that. And I I love that book. I think it's a it's wonderful. It, it's been a while since I've read it, uh, and, but um, I remember it pretty well. I remember it well enough to say that this is like an extremely loose adaptation in the original book and the uh, the quite. Good good black and white uh, film adaptation of it, which is called The Haunting, which came out in 1963. A professor and some other people are kind of investigating this house with this reputation for paranormal activity. And then the house begins to kind of 
um, seduce one of the people who is who is on this investigation, who is named Eleanor, who's kind of neurotic and lonely by kind of promising her uh, a world that will take care of her, um, which um, uh, whereas this is, of course, a, a family drama. It's kind of like six feet under meets the haunting of Hill House. Um, uh, I am six episodes in. I am not finished with it yet. I think it has its shortcomings, but I also am really enjoying it. And, you know, every night after my daughter goes to bed, it's what we want to watch, you know, of the things that are available to us. We want to keep going with it. I think it's scary. I think it's occasionally moving. I think there's, you know, um, again, I think there's some limitations, particularly with some of the cast members, but um, uh, I quite like it. Mm. Uh, Dana, what do you think? Not for me. Really not for Ooh. me, but but it but it kind of gets beyond this mm. show. I mean, I can get into why this particular show is just not my thing, and part of it is just that the occult to me is not that scary. I don't know something about the world of this. A ghost story can be extremely scary, but something about the you know the house and the paranormal investigator, which exists in a, in a way in this show too, right? One of the the kids who grows up to be a. Um, a novelist. His name is Stephen Crane. He writes a book called The Haunting of Hill House. So there's this kind of, you know, callback to Shirley Jackson, but taking her identity and turning it into this character's identity. It's kind of a, which is kind of a weird move. And he's also something of a paranormal investigator, although he basically does that. For example, the clip we heard is him interviewing a woman who says that she saw her dead husband's ghost, right, hanging from the ceiling. And he kind of vampirizes their stories and basically incorporates them into his best-selling novels. Um so there is this this paranormal side, which to me is not it's just not the scariest content in the world. Um, but there's just something about its delivery in this show, too, that feels very, very fake and contrived and TV ish to me. But I think to really get to pull my camera out and say what it is I don't like about it. I don't like horror on TV. Horror on TV has never worked for me. Like episodic servings of scariness have some sort of fakeness in the way that the suspense is doled out that to me it just robs them of scariness like I don't like American Horror Story I didn't couldn't keep up with Stranger Things even though I agree that they're all well done and stylized or whatever um, or what are some other horror series I mean name some The X-Files I guess is vaguely horror and was always really silly to me Chen so Zero there's a few there's a few others uh, yeah I don't think TV is a good shot maybe I'm just more of a movie person but to me even the Halloween that we just trashed right the new <laughs> Halloween I got much more pleasure and scares out of that two hours because horror on film especially in a movie theater where you can't escape has a little bit of this like wham bam thank you ma'am quality right <laughs> like get it done and get out of the theater and uh and something about this like trickling of scariness through however many 10 episodes or something like that it is very slow yeah and very drawn out i mean nothing scary happens in the ter- in terms of like something you would actually jump at until three quarters of the way into the first episode or something like that streaming prestige tv has this one big built-in problem, which is that they apparently really want, you know, 10 to 12 or 14 hours worth of programming. And very often they're working on, you know, a story that justifies four hours or six hours. And um, this, I took me a while to get into it. It was moving very slowly. I thought, oh, here we go. It's sort of airy silences and foreboding that really adds up to nothing. And then I felt really strongly, Isaac, I'm curious whether you agree. I thought the they stuck the landing on episode one, right? That there's there's a great chilling um, twist of a kind uh, that I thought was quite clever at the end of episode one, and then I was then I was hooked. I'm committed. I haven't watched too much more than two episodes, but I'm gonna 
I'm going to stick with it to the end. Yeah, I mean, they. I do think they stick the landing with the end of episode one in a really clever way. I mean, there's a way, the way the show is structured, which contributes to its slowness, so you're either going to go for it or not, is that the first five episodes are lensed through the POV of one of the siblings, right? For, through each of the five siblings. And then the sixth episode, you actually finally get all of them in a room together. So for the first five episodes... Only about 36 hours of action in 2018 actually passes, Um, uh, which uh, and so by the end of that, it actually gets less and less scary because like, you know, the kids are okay because they grow up to be adults. Right. So Mm -hmm. like nothing that imperils the kids is actually scary because part of you is like, I know that they live till the year 2018. (laughs) Um, But what happens instead is it becomes this kind of interesting, you know, I reference Six Feet Under about this family that's kind of living with this trauma and trying to figure out what to do with it. Um, And that I found um, to be compelling enough to keep me watching it, even as I do not think all of the cast members are uh, quite adept at being able to pull it off. Right. Including the kids. I mean, this is a problem when you have a lot of, you know, you have this structure of cutting between their childhood selves and their adult selves. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of kids, right? It's sort five of, of them. It's yeah. hard to keep them straight. I mean, is this just me? I, it, it took me about three episodes to yes. literally figure out like there are five children. They are in two time frames and not because it's particularly avant-garde or it's done in some arty way. It's just like a shitload of content and characters to keep <laughs> track of. I don't know. And again, this may be me in episodic TV where I'm just, why? Just give me the scary shit and let me get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you feel trapped like the characters are trapped in the house. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Isaac, my impression from Twitter is that this thing gains momentum and, and uh, urgency as it goes. Is that right? Well, I am up to the sixth episode, which Slate's very own Sam Adams wrote a really great piece about, about you know, like what is so kind of thrilling about that sixth episode. I am told after that it kind of loses steam, actually, and that the final episode a lot of people are pretty unhappy with. Uh, mm-hmm. I have not gotten there, so I can't, I, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do think it is building towards a revelation at the end of the fifth episode and then a th- uh, the sixth episode is about dealing with the aftermath of that revelation that I quite liked. In a weird way, I would sort of be okay with the sixth episode being the finale. Like, I'm sort of like, don't feel as, as like I really need to the next four episodes. I was very satisfied with that as the end. And then you could have a second season or something. But um, I'm compelled. I'm going to keep I'm going to keep trudging to the end. Quick aesthetic, since the sixth episode, which I haven't seen yet either, appears to be all about, you know, long takes. And it's this like very directed kind of thing. I just have to ask you guys about the lighting. Like I spent the first several episodes oh thinking, God. is this some kind of David Lynch thing where we're going to discover that this fake gold golden lit, no. like contrived world is actually somebody's imagination and we're really in some more gritty kind of textured world. But no, every single scene is lit. I watched it with a friend and we kept trying to come up with metaphors. I was just like, I just, I feel like I'm in a, like a mall in Dubai or something. There's this really bland kind of like golden ambient lighting on everything. I'm glad you brought that up because I was worried this was going to be too in the weeds. So I'm glad that other people are bugged by this. The, the, color correction and relighting of the show in post, which is what I think has caused that to happen, is really distracting. In the first episode, um, Michael Huseman, Stephen Crane's uh, um, the house that he's in, they have colored it in such a way that the back wall is the same color as his face, which makes his face look weirdly amorphous and out of focus. There's a key light they've added on the women's faces in almost every single shot of them that makes them weirdly look like they're glowing. Like there is a very weird, it, I mean, it sort of does feel like they banged it out really fast and then had to fix it. I didn't afterwards. think of it as being imposed. I thought I thought they were just lighting decisions on site. But yeah, yeah, I think you're, you're right. But there's something so artificial and TV-ish about 
about the way that looks that it just kept taking me out of it. We were also laughing, saying like, in real life, these siblings, they're always talking to each other on the phone urgently about various, you know, ghost appearances. And we were saying, in reality, every single conversation would be, you should see the light in this room right now. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, mine too. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. There is an odd thing about what they have done with the lighting and the coloring on that show that is totally befuddling to me. Um, particularly the golden glow on every actress's face when they are in close-up. Yeah, to make a movie about a haunted house with all these dark secrets and everything is lit in the exact same flat golden way, I just, I don't get it. <laughs> Isaac, you're a man for all seasons. What was the time signature of the uh, Halloween theme song? It's in 5-4. Oh, 5-4. I was just like... See, it's 5-4. Give me a classic song that's also in 5-4. Take 5 by Dave Brubeck. I knew you were right there. I just, you're so... I read you like an open book. I may not know what the fuck... I may not know what the fuck 5-4 is, but you, sir, an open book. Okay. It's a Haunting of Hill House. Consensus seems to be check it out, see if it grabs you, but absolutely read the original novel, correct? Correct. The The original novel is amazing. It's like a great yeah. novel. It's a great scary haunted house book. It's very unnerving. Uh, it's really wonderful. I'm just going to float the theory, not having read the book, that the writing for the series is just a wee bit inferior to Shirley Jackson's. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, you, would, <laughs> you, would, you would be correct about that, yes. And to do that is evil. <laughs> That's it. By evil, it's not landing. I don't know why. I, if I see Julia, would be laughing her ass off right now. I'm laughing, uh, just away from the mic where you can't hear me. Obsequiously. All right, moving on. All right. Well, our next uh, our next segment is uh, inspired, if that's the right word, by an interview that Jason Blum gave. Uh, and uh, so he is the head of Blumhouse uh, Productions, um, a, a shop known for making. Um, low-budget horror movies that are thematically intriguing and uh, in their way quite sophisticated and director-driven. Dana, is that correct? Yeah, that's safe to say. I mean, he's the guy, he made his name and his production company made its fortune with the Paranormal Activity movies, which are kind of the test case for a movie that takes zero money to make and makes gobs at the box office, right? I think the first couple of Paranormal Activity movies are great. I don't know if you guys have seen them because they are extremely low budget, but have this great high concept about, you know, sort of recording equipment and how the, the paranormal appears on them. And then Jason Blum started to branch out after making that fortune and made such movies as Get Out, which is probably his most prestigious and kind of critically uh, artistically successful project. So a couple weeks ago, Jason Bloom, the producer, uh, was giving this interview to Matt Patches in Polygon and happened to sort of blurt out that he was not able to find female directors for his projects. I guess maybe Matt asked him, you know, why do you have so few female directed projects? And uh, and Jason Bloom just really kind of stepped in it and said, oh, well, you know, we, we haven't been able to find any women. I guess women just aren't interested in directing horror. Yeah, he said there are not a lot of female directors, period, and even less who are inclined to do horror. And then he mentions two that he tried to work out a deal with and it, it, it fell through and never happened. I mean, I didn't find what he said that egregious because he is correct in the first thing he said, right? There are far fewer female directors to choose from just in the field out there. I think it's part two, the idea that somehow, you know, women are just constitutionally not interested in directing horror that got people upset and got the writer Soraya Roberts to write a really interesting essay on this interaction and this phenomenon in long reads. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I really liked um, uh, the Soraya Roberts piece in Long Reads because, you know, she hits on a lot of different sort of things that intersect with this issue. Like the like the early days of horror cinema are heavily rooted in the gothic, which is a sort of gendered feminine genre. You know, like that's where its roots are. There are um, horror films, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, since the sort of new horror movement often have female protagonists. You know, other than the monster, there's often like a woman at the center of them. I mean, we were just saying earlier that this new Halloween film is the the first uh, movie with a to star a woman over 55 and debut at number one at the box office. I mean, that's that's incredible, you know. So it, it, it simply isn't true that there isn't this intersection between women and, and horror films or that there aren't directors who would be interested in doing it. Right. And in a way, it's even more pointed than that. Right. And what she's saying is working off of uh, a work done by a theorist and scholar, feminist theorist and scholar, is that the funny thing about the horror genre is that is that young, very often young women are being victimized and, and chased or menaced in a way that the entire audience, regardless of, of gender, identifies with intensely. And so there's this powerful psychological bond uh, between both men and women in the audience and the and and the um and the chaste young woman and furthermore the the genre finds in its own weird way first of all a way to empower women because very often the the crux of the movie is when the uh, girl or young woman goes from being chased to uh, being an agent in her own salvation and secondly that oddly enough the horror genre has found a way to deal with as this feminist scholar has pointed out very women-centric issues involving, you know, menstruation and Carrie or pregnancy and Rosemary's Baby, it comes back over and over again, almost more than other popular genres, probably in some sense, way more than other popular genres to what it is to be a woman. And, and, and yet, uh, Blum is capable of saying this thing about it. Don't you think that that's kind of the crux of the? I mean, that was sort of where where the. It's a great essay, by the way, but it just it just really hooked me on that idea. I'd never thought of that before. Dana, did you find that interesting too? Yeah, I mean, the book she's talking about is Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover. It's an early '90s book that's kind of a classic of feminist film theory. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if the idea of the final girl is something that Carol Clover invented, but the final girl is what she's talking about. Jamie Lee Curtis being in the original Halloween, being sort of the or final girl. And of course, this, this new Halloween throws away the incredible possibility of taking that final girl and making her the true protagonist of the next movie. I think it kind of sidelines Jamie Lee Curtis and just waits for the moment she can get her payoff at the end, right? But but it is still a, a feminist gesture in some way to give the final girl her own movie. I just think it's a gesture that hasn't kind of been completed to the degree that, for example, a female director might have done. Not to essentialize and say that, you know, we know exactly what female directed horror would look like or, or should look like. But I think that is a real question, right? I mean, unquestionably as bait, women have been central to horror films, right? And and spooky movies of all kinds and thrillers forever. But the question is, what what else can they be besides bait? And I think that that essay asks the question and Carol Clover's book asks that question. Yeah, totally. I mean, the only thing that I would add to that is that, you know, like the kind of like, oh, I don't, you know, there aren't that many female directors that are not that interested in horror. I have trouble finding them or whatever. You know, like that um, kind of I think even Jason Blum called it boneheaded, but you know, that kind of like boneheaded response, um, you know, is something that like a few years ago, everyone was saying in theater about why we don't have more diverse offerings of playwrights on the American stage. You'd be like, Oh, well, you know, there's not that many works in the pipeline or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, um, uh, 
it it is the thing that white male gatekeepers reach for immediately. It's almost like reflexive. Do you know, like you know, as as the statement that you say in response. And the truth of the matter is, I, I think the reason why this was so sort of ridiculous and jumped on so quickly is that uh, Blumhouse's specialty is sub five million dollar movies, and they are a factory with like very tight quality control in the work that they do. They are the perfect place to be taking directors that you might not have heard of, or interesting people who might not have done horror before, or whatever, and um, uh, uh, shepherding that work through to the end. They actually, we know they do that because they've done it before. It's not like Jordan Peele was famous because of Key and Peele, but it's not like he was like an incredible well-regarded director or, yeah, that's or, a real or risk movie writer yeah. before he made Get Out. It was, a, it was a risk. They did a great job with it. He did a great job with it. It was brilliant. It paid off. I am sure that it isn't that there are other people that one could find uh, 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 to do that with. And they're actually ideally set up to do that. Yeah, Blum is like the corpsman, right? Like he's the Svengali who can give you a you know micro budget or a relatively small budget. And, you know, you prove uh, your you prove your chops as a, as a young director and it's, it's exactly it's throwing a catch 22 uh, in the face of the possibility of, of young women directors coming up through that system. Dana, why don't we talk about women who have directed uh, horror movies and done it successfully? Yeah, I was just going to throw out the name of, of one in a, a movie that we've talked about on the show and that I love. And that, to his credit, Jason Blum says that he has tried to get this director many times and she's always turned him down, which is Jennifer Kent, the Australian director who made The Babadook, which to me is 2014, I think. I mean, I think it's one of the best horror movies in the last 10 years or something like that. I don't think I've seen a better horror movie since. And actually, she has very much of a kind of Blumhouse sensibility in the way that 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 movie functions. Very minimalist, no special effects, you know, everything done just uh, with practical effects and a a creepy costume. But it ends up being this film about motherhood and about grief and about, you know, going mad. And it's just an incredible, incredible movie. So, I mean, I've already written and spoken so much about The Babadook. There are probably few listeners who don't already know that I love it. But that's mine. Jennifer Kent. Give her some more horror huh. to direct. That's very cool. Isaac, do you have one? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go for Karen Kusama, the director of Girl Fight and Aeon Flux and Jennifer's Body. Oh, Jennifer's and, Body. Uh, I love that movie. It's so underrated. Yeah, lots of great TV episodes. She directed for Billions, for All to Catch Fire and stuff. But the movie that I want to talk about is The Invitation, which is one of these sort of small budget. It takes place in one house. It's kind of like... Um, uh, it comes at night or the gift, you know, those movies that are on Netflix that didn't cost that much. Often Joel Edgerton is in them, although he's not in this one. Uh, uh, it stars Michael Huseman, who's the the um, grown up Steve Crane in The Haunting of Hill House and Logan Marshall Green. And it uh, saying too much about it would actually probably uh, spoil something. But it is about this dinner party. Um, and the entire film is a setup to a truly horrific final, maybe 10 or 15 minutes tops. But during that setup, the, just the way it is shot and edited, you are constantly unbelievably tense. Like there's just the slow buildup and ratcheting of tension. It really feels like Karen Kasama can kind of take any image and make you feel worried about it. Um, uh, (laughs) What a talent. And, 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 uh, you know, even cars pulling up into the driveway, you're like, is there something in this driveway? There isn't. It's actually just this slow build to to the finale. And then the finale is um, 
excruciating and terrifying and thrilling and um, uh, haunting. And it's just, it's a really, really good movie. It takes place in one house, <laughs> you know, no money. There's no special effects. I mean, there's, there's nothing supernatural in it. It's, um, I, I just like just thought it was incredible. Wow, that sounds amazing. Wait, this, this that makes me cool. want to ask one quick wrap up question. Since this whole show has been about Halloween and scariness, and is something scary or is it not scary? And part of the reason we were able to do this show this week is because Julia is out, and uh, and Julia will not watch horror movies. She really doesn't enjoy them. I know many people who are like this. My partner is actually like this. He won't watch. He wouldn't watch the Haunting of Hill House with me. Well, I'm anxious enough. Why do I need to get more anxious? Um, but how do you guys feel about horror as a genre? Do you like to be scared? Uh, do you seek to be scared or is it something that you, um, you do sparingly? I really uh, enjoy it sometimes. I'm not like a huge one of my best friends is a, a horror completist. I mean, he he spent his 20s. He would literally watch a horror movie every single day. And now he writes them. I mean, he is professionally. I mean, he's like that kind of person. I've never been that kind of person. I am fascinated by the genre. There's certain ones that I like absolutely love. There's a whole kind of wing of it that has to do with, you know, incredibly graphic um, depictions of torture or sexual violence that I will have nothing to do with. But uh, I do enjoy the visceral, you know, uh, in every sense of the term, thrill of, uh, of a good horror movie. I mean, you know, the original Aliens, probably one of my favorite movies of oh, all time. Yeah. No, Even though no, the first no. time I saw it, I had to fast forward through it. My mom and I watched it together and we fast forward through huge sections of it. And then the next day watched it from beginning right. to end because it's just that scary. You know, um, no, I, I love it. I think it's a really fun uh, uh, genre. It's just not one that um, I feel like I'm like a super expert fan. Of. Right. Mm-hmm. Steve, what about you? Do, you? do you tend to seek out things that are scary? I would give almost exactly the same answer as Isaac. Uh, I like it a lot some of the time. And I really like the alt uh, horror movement and, you know, It Follows and um, give me a couple of, you know, quiet. What was the one? Don't Breathe. Yeah, there's It Follows. There's Don't Breathe. There's, I mean, in, in some ways, the Babadook and the Witch, although they're not like they're, I mean, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. The yeah. Quiet Place. What's Mama. The with Jessica Chastain, we think we talked about this one on the show. Oh, that was a, that, that was a good low budget or right. Yeah. So those, I, and I love that. That's I, it. Just seems like a, a genre of the moment in a really good way. I love anything that encourages young-ish people to make movies for under ten, possibly under five million dollars, and do it creatively. Because then you get what Carpenter was doing in '78. You know, as opposed to giving them thirty-five million dollars to make a bloated, you know, homage. Anyway. Wait, another another shout out to that movie's success, the original John Carpenter Halloween. It was the most successful independent film. It broke all records. It was the most successful independent film of all time, and it held that record for over twenty years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, the Soraya Roberts essay is called "The Others: Why Women Are Shut Out of Horror." You should check it out. She's a very good writer, and I say that in part because she's a fan and a listener of the show, but only in part. You suck up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. Dana. Are you evil? <laughs> My endorsement Dana. actually is kind of evil. 
Yes, I am sticking with the the spooky theme of today's show by uh, by endorsing a scary podcast, or rather, a podcast about a scary movie, a whole series of scary movies. This is a bit of a log roll because it's a, a friend's podcast, but she's so good that I I consider it fair game. So Amy Nicholson, film critic for The Ringer and other places, and frequent uh, participant in the Slate Movie Club, I hope this year as well, has done this podcast eight parts. I think they may have added a ninth part since the release of the new Halloween called Halloween Unmasked, and uh, and it's a whole behind the scenes kind of history of John Carpenter's Halloween, all of the knockoffs it inspired, all of the sequels, how it changed horror. A lot of the factoids I've come up with throughout today's show have come straight from uh, from the mouth of Amy Nicholson in this podcast. And uh, I'm only a bit of a way through it, but um, it's really, really good listening, not just as sort of research or preparation for the new Halloween, but even if you care nothing about it, even if you just want to hear about a really creative, interesting guy named John Carpenter who, you know, started making movies in his backyard as a kid. He's on it quite quite a bit, as is Jamie Lee Curtis, as will be, as I keep listening, you know, mask makers and uh, psychologists who work with actual serial killers and just every angle you could possibly think of on Halloween, Amy is taking it. And she's just a she's delightful company to go through that world with. So it's on The Ringer. I believe it has eight or nine episodes, each about half an hour long or so. Halloween Unmasked. Hmm. Uh, Very cool. Uh, Isaac, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to endorse a video game this uh, week, but a spooky video game and one that you don't have to be, I think, a seasoned video game player to play and enjoy. And if you like auteurism, it's made by one dude. It's called Return of the Obra Din. It's by Lucas Pope, who uh, had a big kind of indie video game hit a few years ago with a with a game called Papers, Please, where you're an immigration officer in like a Soviet kind of um uh, Eastern Bloc country and you just have to kind of manage all the different directives you get from above while deciding whether people can legally enter your country or not. Um, this is a very different game. It is a mystery game set in 1807 in which a uh, ghost ship of the East India Trading Company that's been missing for five years has reappeared and everyone on it is dead. And your job is to make your way through the ship investigating each of the deaths to determine how the person died and if they were killed by someone else who killed them and also identify who they are based on these sort of images you have. And you have this kind of supernatural watch that will allow you to see and hear the moment of their death. So every time you dis- you discover a body, you there's just some dialogue that you can hear and then there is a still image of the moment they died. And you have to investigate each of these still images and through that and deductive reasoning and logic um, and lots of visual and auditory clues figure out who each of these people are, what happened to them and what befell the Obradin. It um it is it's a really, really incredible game. And it is hard, but it is not hard in like a gameplay level. It is hard because you actually have to think very hard to figure out who all of these people are. I am about halfway through identifying the uh, bodies and who who killed them. Uh, uh, and I am just, I'm absolutely loving it. Oh my God, it's like Clue, but much grislier, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I should say, if you're worried about it being grisly, the art is one bit black and white. It looks like something on a Commodore 64. It's one bit black and white art. So it's very stylized. It's not gross um uh and it's just a whole lot of fun Mm. uh that sounds cool all right so uh edward thomas is one of the war poets who famously died in world war one along with secret sassoon and um uh wilford owen uh thomas has another claim to fame is in that he was not a poet in fact what he was was a very very influential uh reviewer of poetry 
um, and a kind of hack writer. Um, up until about 1913, he was in his, I believe, early 30s, right around then, um, uh, crushed by depression, a word that he himself used uh, to describe his own temperament, um, deeply melancholy, suicidal, uh, you know, uh, uh, chronically suicidal, um, and, and deeply frustrated in ways that he couldn't artic- fully articulate, even though he was a beautiful writer. I mean, even though much of what he did was for the money and on deadline, uh, uh, his criticism holds up today. It's extraordinary poetry criticism. Uh, and then in 1913, he met a peculiar American who had just come over uh, on a boat with his family with a trunk full of unpublished poems named Robert Frost. And Edward Thomas was the person who held a mirror up to the first time to Frost's genius. There, there were people who were starting to understand that that trunk full of poems was special. Uh, Thomas was the first person to really understand how special and uh, how important they are. But it worked the other way, too. Frost said to Thomas, reading his work, reading his criticism, he said, just put it in verse. You are essentially a poet. You must trust me when I say this to you. And um, Thomas did it uh, and became a poet and not only a poet, but I mean, great might be putting it a little strongly, but but one of the truly important early uh, 20th century uh, English poets. And something else happened in their friendship, too, which is that um, Frost and Thomas would walk for hours and hours in the English countryside talking about everything. And and Thomas uh, had this interesting habit, which was um, no matter where they ended up, he regretted it. No matter how beautiful the vista, how perfect the walk, Thomas would say, oh, but we could have gone this other way. And um, so Frost sat down and wrote a poem uh, for him called um, The Road Not Taken, which by some estimates is the single most uh, popular piece of uh, poetry ever uh, written. There actually are some empirical metrics uh, for that. And he, and he wrote it kind of as a way of, of twitting him, in fact. Like he was sort of saying that the people always think that they uh, took the wrong road or they tell themselves they took the right road and they're always wrong. You took whatever road you took, which is actually the point of that poem, which is widely misinterpreted. But he did something else too, which is that he um, uh, made Thomas into a poet and made him feel existentially strong and definite in a way that he hadn't been before. And Thomas followed through on that and uh, signed up and became a soldier in World War I and was killed on Easter Monday um, two years later. Uh, it's a remarkable story. It is beautifully told in a biography by a man named uh, Matthew Hollis called Now All Roads Lead to France. Uh, and it's what I'm currently reading, and it's uh, brilliant. It's a very good book, very good biography. All right then, Isaac. Um, yeah, I would say that your feet got bigger, the shoes got a little smaller. You filled them pretty well. I mean, you're no Julia Turner, but we knew that going in. Oh shucks, <laughs> Dana. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. As always. All right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com/culturefest. As always, you can email us at culturefest@slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com/culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Isaac Butler and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Okay. I'm not feeling it. This ain't no kick in the box. Mazel tov. Yeah, I remember Werewolf Bar Mitzvah. Spooky, scary. Yeah, that's a great one. Boys becoming men. Men becoming wolves.